0: From quantum physics to poetry, from neuroscience to geography, from philosophy to immersive realities, Building 21 is a space where one can explore, play with, manipulate, bend, break, and probe the multifaceted dimensions of ideas, knowledge, and thinking.
1: Alexander Weinstein is the
0: author of the short story collections, Universal Love and Children of the New World, which was chosen as a New York Times 100 Notable Books of the Year, and a Best Book of the Year by NPR, Google, and Electric Literature. His fiction and interviews have appeared in Rolling Stone, World Literature Today, Best American Science Fiction, and Best American Experimental Writing. Informed by his origins as a realist writer, and a long-time preoccupation with the role of technology in society, Weinstein imagines how the most essential elements of our lives — love, friendship, meaning, and so much more — may become distorted, mediated or intensified in futures that are all too imaginable. All right, today, again, I'm joined by Rebecca and Damien, as usual, and we have a very, very special guest, Alexander Weinstein, author of Children of the New World, a... Beautiful collection of short stories about the future, speculative future, and uh, Alexander is also here today at McGill. He he gave a workshop on speculative fiction. He talked about uh, the role of the writer in today's world, and uh, soon, a bit later, just after this podcast, uh, he'll be uh, reading from his new book called Universal Love. So, welcome, Alexander. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Why don't we start by, maybe you could tell us a few things about yourself. Sure.
2: So, uh, as you said, I'm speculative fiction author. I've been writing pretty much my whole life. Uh, I'm also director of the Martha's Vineyard Institute of Creative Writing and a professor at Siena Heights University and a father of a 16-year-old. Son though, who often appears in my work. All
0: right, so I have to start with something you told me last night. Uh, we had dinner together last night with uh, Rachel, your wife. It was a very, very pleasant dinner. And here's my phone uh, pinging. That's okay. That's part of technology, I guess. <laughs> that's uh,
2: that's the like for mentioning the dinner we
1: had. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs>
0: You told me something yesterday that really, really stuck with me. You told me you don't really read science fiction, even though you are what I would say probably a science fiction writer. And even more interesting, you're sort of a Luddite.
2: Yes, that's that's right, on, on both counts. Really, my background in reading was speculative fiction, and before that was realism. So James Baldwin, Chekhov, uh, Somerset Maugham, And then moving into people, I think as sci-fi as it got, was really Kurt Vonnegut or Kafka. They don't usually fall under the umbrella of of hard sci-fi. And that allowed me for some time to, I think, have a freedom to not feel like there were these external rules that I had to follow as a writer. I was just writing really realism just 10 years from now is how I thought of it. Um, with a kind of spooky future, and I didn't feel like I had to hold to any genre constraints then. Uh, and then, luddite completely. You know, in many ways, I a lot of my stories come from the glitchiness of how I use technology. That then is either incredibly embarrassing because I make a mistake, or it proves a awkwardness that illuminates the emotions underneath it, which then let me create these very strange and dystopian futures that sometimes happen in my stories.
0: So in Children of the New World, and tell me if I'm wrong, Alexander, it seems to me that your characters are lost without technology. They seem to have lost the ability to be human without technology and most of your short stories are sort of this idea of technology being taken away from them, that, that part that makes them human. And they're sur- suddenly well, lost in the wilderness, and they really can't deal with that. Is, that. is that a fair reading?
2: Yeah, I think it's the loss or the glitch of the technology that makes them realize their own humanness in a certain way, that they'd forgotten about reading stories to their children because the robot took care of it. And now that the robot's broken down they start to realize oh there was a gap there that we didn't realize you know we we forgot about our child to some degree or the technology doesn't work quite right and because of that it then illuminates that they don't fully know how to love yet right which is our own human issues how how do we love i'm always looking at these questions that are are human in nature that i think our technology has potentially blinded us a little bit to developing or thwarted our development. And so it's when the technology breaks down that suddenly the characters have to come alive. So
1: the last story in the book, Ice Age, that's the last one, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I sort of see that as, as, a, as a good connecting point here because remind me, tell me if I'm getting this wrong, but uh, it's a post-apocalyptic setting. Mm-hmm. Um, people have returned to this more kind of intuitive, analog, nomadic, pastoral way of living that you're describing. That's right. Uh, and then we have this sort of uh, the gods have gone crazy moment, right? Where someone appears with a tool and it implies that like the cycle is going to begin again. Exactly. So I'm just wondering, like, could you elaborate on that decisive moment? Because that seems to be the inceptive moment in this whole kind of uh, vision that you're Describing the moment in which a mediation with our environment and with each other is introduced, and like what exactly that means,
2: yeah. So, in Ice Age, you know, all of the technological critique is kind of gone because it all got wiped out and buried under the the snow. And then the danger, you know, in there is that we have somebody in a double decker igloo who has figured out how (laughs) to burn his way down to the houses and exploit them. And he's using up all of the remaining wood because the only wood is what pokes out of the top of of the ice. And this was happening during Occupy Wall Street. So I was thinking a lot about the 99% and the 1%. It was also happening, there was Dakota Pipeline stuff happening as well. And so there's really this kind of, mm, I wanted to have it be a parable about consumerism, about capitalism, about... Really, the the single decker igloos, the regular folk, they're creating, even though they're in trouble, a community that shares. They might not like each other, but they have the disco igloo. They get together. <laughs> they've, you know, they have a pretty good. And the double decker igloo, Phil, he he introduces consumerism again. And so the ending. Now, granted, he's probably saving them because they need the stuff from the houses eventually, but he's not giving it away, right? He's creating a market economy again. And so the communal is being threatened by the commercial. And I, and I think that is in many ways behind a lot of the stories where the our community, even though online presents the opportunity for beautiful communities to flourish, the marketing always is behind it or often behind it, exploiting that very community that it claims to be building.
3: One of the points that came up in the Q&A session was that your vision of technology or the, the sort of non-dystopian understanding of how we can use technology didn't really relate to the person to person or to this commercial aspect, but more just to anything that could be positive um, in, in incorporating technology into our lives was had to do with, I don't know, restoring somehow our relationship with the environment or not exploiting or finding alternatives to how we overconsume. Yeah. And the environment. And I was wondering if you could touch on that a little bit more.
2: It, that came from a question of Google where they said, what kind of technology would you like us to make? And I didn't know that they were going to ask me that at all, you know. And uh, so immediately I went to the ecological, which I think is a really pertinent place where technology could help us out. We have drinking water issues and we have sustainability issues 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 of how do we get solar power, how do we get green energy, how can we provide food to the masses, how do we feed and get water and get housing to everyone. Those are solutions that don't necessarily come with profit. And I think technology could be turned towards that as well as solving its own problem. Right now technology is based largely on needing electricity and dirty electricity. So how does it solve its own problem there? Simultaneously, there's an, there's the exploratory art part of being able to, if it could open our minds to see the imperceptible, right, the, to be able to see, for example, greater mystical visions. That would be really interesting, too, as long as those mystical visions aren't charged, you know, 99 cents a second as <laughs> we're in the enlightened state.
3: Right. You talked about med- meditation apps, right, right? And, and this kind of technological applications that allow us to kind of delve into the self.
2: Yeah. But here's the answer that I thought about, and it's it's weirdly Orwellian in some ways, which is that Google has the email addresses of most everybody. And so in some ways, I would like Google to empower itself to create a second government for us, which would be a beneficial government that would create free healthcare and free universities and start employing people in that way. And reach out to all of the celebrities to fund, you know, create a new kind of philanthropy and stardom, where stardom came from how much did you help create funding for the collective group. And rather than wait for the politicians to do all of that, they could create a second sort of a social democracy system
3: this is a positive technological uh, revolution. A, <laughs> it's so
0: dangerous, right? It's totally,
2: I mean, it's totally <laughs> yeah. But
0: but okay, I got uh, it. Technocrat for, communism. Yeah. Is, uh, <laughs> yeah. No, no, it's great. <laughs> okay, so I, everyone knows me here as an optimist, but I, I try to see things a bit differently. Okay, so Facebook is probably totally totally evil. It's probably the Microsoft of today. Mm. Uh, late 90s early 2000 mm-hmm. but but Google I would say you know between all of the tools they provide for us for free and I'm not saying they per- they're perfect but you know some of the, the things you mentioned about Google working essentially for democracy mm-hmm. there's things they're doing for the environment even though you know servers are you know, very costly in terms of CO two, but there are things they're doing for the environment. There's things they're doing to save, you know, threatened animals. They have their own internal struggles. The employees have rejected working with with the Pentagon, and they also provide us with a suite of tools that are kind of useful mm. for absolutely free, actually. Mm. And you know, more than fifty percent of the web is free. Yeah, and we are your website is a good example of this, right? Mm-hmm. We get all sorts of information, and you yeah. know, the Building Twenty One website is too. So
2: it's not. Totally dark. Much of what I'm talking about is the negative side, but the great side of it is that part is the connection, is the information, is connecting communities, particularly marginalized communities, and uh, reaching out and finding out that you're not alone and never mind the political part, which is of capturing police brutality and spreading that immediately and trying to get justice. These are fantastic parts of the internet. And it was interesting, you know, like when. I set up my website. One of the questions that I had about it that was asked is, you know, would it be okay to put cookies on to track so that then you can have ad space that would promote your book? And I said, no, I don't want that actually. Even though it would benefit, I want a safe space where Mm -hmm. people can come and they won't be tracked. And I think that this idea of data dignity and Mm -hmm. how to protect that we're not always trying to latch on or put these cookies, right, or put these things in there that will exploit one another is really important that this idea of the free internet or the free info. Now, the question of then, if you really went there, how do you support it financially is is another economic question that I don't have the answer to, but I think it's been turned towards a lot of dark reasons, especially Facebook and Cambridge Analytica and all of this, where you can make money off people's data, you can sell it, and you can do social experiments that are really uh, toxic. And somehow we need to safeguard against that. I'm not sure what the steps will be so that the beauty of the internet, of connecting and of exploration can really flourish, which is what I think is amazing with Building 21 is, is creating these spaces where ideas can flourish and they're not dependent on them selling themselves, you know, in that way. I'd like to see that happen more and more. I I think our devices are pushing us towards a kind of even marketing of the self. You know, how do we use our presence, our YouTube video to gain followers in order to get maybe an ad or if it's not an ad just to get social power or have people like us, you know, and that's a lot of my fiction dives into that weird emotional space of trying to get likes from one another, which is so human and beautiful, but becomes problematic in
1: in social media. Uh, One of the things that Olivier were in this Radical Futures project, the other day we were having a, a conversation about, you know, what could be reasonable predictions about the way things might continue going. And one of the only things that we kind of agreed on was that things will become increasingly more mediated. They'll become more technologically mediated. Uh, cybernetically mediated. And I think you're touching on that. Like I see your work and also, you know, shows like Black Mirror. Mm. There seems to be a general consensus that we can address the fundamental problems of culture through the lens of technology. Where do you where do you see this going? Speaking to what our personal age old problems through a technological lens. I see that especially, for example, in the story you were referencing earlier, where it's about, you know, vulnerability, you know, in a romantic relationship, and how this occurs explicitly in, you know, in terms of this sort of layering, like a Russian nesting doll, where, yeah. right, where vulnerability is now operationalized through technology, mm-hmm. right? So we're addressing things that, you know, we can relate to without technology, but inevitably through technology, right?
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think like when I th- Think about virtual reality and what some of the dream, dreamers of virtual reality talked about, where one might learn to express one's emotions. Is it the squid or the octopus that can change the color of, of one's skin to express that, that we would learn a whole new way of expressing our emotions non-verbally? is completely fascinating, right? And the problem is that we haven't learned to express our emotions verbally yet. So there's that gap where for me, all the humor and all of the problems come up as a fiction writer, but also where I also see as a human being, we have those issues. How does the app teach us? How does our technology teach us? So if you take dating apps, for example, presumably they're there to connect us with other people who might foster love or arrows or whatever it might be, but the people we don't like, we learn to swipe into the trash. And so to use that app properly, you have to discard people. And one might argue that one does that when you walk into a bar because you look around and discard, but it's not quite the same as making sure that they never are seen again in a certain action one is taking. And so that's where I think there's ways that we learn to interact that are new, kind of new emotions or hyper emotions of what we already did. And that's both the positive and the negative there, right? Where if we could learn to communicate telepathically, wonderful. Because one more idea that interests me is that we're just catching up. We're just using technology as the middle ground for what our consciousness can actually do. And so We're using it as a crutch right now because we don't quite believe in the power of our own minds to access all information at all times, which the mystics of the world have said one has access to. So we need the middle ground of that, and that's the most optimistic that I see where we're creating really
1: these techniques, technological techniques, to finally trust our own minds. Just on the the topic, I've I've been dying to ask this question. That... You know one of my favorite authors is, is Camus, and you know you were talking about Chekhov earlier saying something similar. and one of the things he said that I, that I really liked is that the vocation of philosophy and technology, applied sciences is, is to provide solutions. And the task of literature is to illustrate problems hmm. well. And insofar as we think about technology like a tool in, in the way you were just describing, are there problems that we want to leave? in our lives like are there problems that we don't want to try to solve especially when it seems that you know the nature of these problems has fueled the creation of you know so much beautiful work and you know so much salient existential emotion in in our lives so much meaning right? and so would it is the question like would it what's technology
2: that would help us not have to deal with a certain set of emotions that we're actually ready to get rid of no, no
1: quite the inverse so it, it, i guess what i mean is, is like are there are there tools that we know would work but we just don't want, we shouldn't want to implement are are there problems that we don't want addressed that we that we just want to leave as as problems in the, as the way they are yeah hmm
2: It's an interesting question from the Buddhist perspective <laughs> because it is the the problems that we leave as are that cause us the daily sufferings and challenges that make us grow. I mean, I tend to see that all of the things that I haven't wanted to face when I'm forced to face them, make me a better human being, hmm. ultimately, whether I, whether I wanted to or not. It, it forces me to to wrestle with those things. And I think that some of the steps that we're jumping, the gap that I'm talking about in technology is that we're trying to jump certain gaps that we haven't figured out how we deal with that suffering yet. And that's where the problems for me come in how do we actually spend time with ourselves? How do we spend time with one another? How do we connect? How do we open our hearts? I don't know that the internet has gotten us necessarily closer to that. It's connected us, but I'm not sure that it's teaching us those secrets yet. And those are human secrets that seem to come about simply from living and, and having those problems be there.
0: The question you ask me is that if you have a, uh, an implant that makes you enlightened, are you really enlightened? Is that really you? Basically? No. Well, is, does that does the shortcut count? Well, is yeah. is it the result that counts, or the, you know, the route to get there? Yeah, yeah. I mean,
2: it's you know, I'm very interested in again the different mystical traditions, and so I always ask myself if there was this, not even the implant, just like a little Alexa I could put in the room, and suddenly it would work on my bioenergetics, and I would feel deeply compassionate, and my heart would open, and I would see the universe as whatever is underneath it all why wouldn't I try that out just for 10 minutes, right? Just for five seconds. And I probably would. I mean, the answer is I probably would want to try that. The fear is that then I become dependent on that to make the world sacred, or I become dependent on that to connect to people, to bring it more to where we are today, right? Or I become dependent on that to find my way to the restaurant, which is a wonderful thing, except I didn't have to stop anywhere along and say, excuse me, I'm new here how do I get to the restaurant? Well, where are you from? And then this whole human interaction starts to flourish. Obviously, that's not how it always goes <laughs> on the street, right? <laughs> but being very optimistic about our human community here. But it is also that hope that I have in the stories, that it's that breakdown that then brings out the human compassion, because I do believe that at our hearts, the heart of it all, we do want love, we do want connection which is the sweet part of why we create all these apps. It's a sweet part, I think, of a certain brand of the technology that we use or a certain category of that. It's probably why I'm all the more upset in my fiction when that sweetness gets co-opted like Facebook does, sold, throws elections, and creates genocide. I mean, how dare you in some ways? And I think that sort of uh, righteous indignation fuels a lot of the conflict in the stories.
0: So why don't you tell us uh, a bit about your new book? Yeah,
2: so... Now I'm moving into this idea of futuristic love, so universal love deals with love stories, both family love and uh, parenthood and romantic love and friendship, and again in a slightly altered near future. So the first story, a mother passes away and the family decides to replace her with a hologram in order to help the grieving father who has clearly gone into grief and can't cope, and that works except the new mother is even more interesting than the old mother.
1: <laughs>
2: and so that causes That's some great. It causes some problems. <laughs> there are children who are begging and begging their parents for the new implant technology and won't leave them alone until the parents finally take them to the implant store and give them a the technology. And then they can't remove it because of uh, signing contracts that they're paying for. And they have to try to reach their kids who have disappeared into the implant world. Mm. There's a story comfort porn where it's a kind of post Tinder where everybody can get sex really easily simply by because everybody's rating each other and so safety and consent and you have ratings for that. So you can just choose what you'd like to do that night and people will come over and you can have sex, but nobody connects anymore. And so everybody's watching comfort porn where it's just friends like waving at the camera saying like we're so happy to see you yeah
1: it, it may it may i mean uh, maybe you're aware of this but that is actually already a subgenre yeah. of pornography yeah. uh, no no i'm not joking yeah, no, it's uh, there are, comfort d- porn well i don't know if it has that precise name there you can find dozens of hours of just your girlfriend Talks you out of a bad mood. No. Um, my oh my God. After the sexual intercourse, the, you have some pillow talk, whatever, like stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. So
2: that, right. This is the problem. I come up with these dystopian futures and then they're already heading there, right? Or they're, <laughs> they're there. So they're
3: dystopian realities. The so dystopian
2: really realities, exactly. So this one, I, I feel like the Children of the New World really looked at the intrusion, I think, of technology. This w- new book kind of accepts that we all accepted that intrusion and now it's just dealing with the human problems of connection within there and and how how love changes and how it can survive in a near future that that has totally moved into the technological age
0: will we be able to still be human without technology 20 years from now
2: yeah definitely i mean i i think so i think we are human at at the you know The question, without technology, certainly, for me, the question is like, what are we losing? Like, there's some really important human attributes if all electricity was to go out in that kind of situation. What is the knowledge that we have of survival or any of those kind of things or how to even make, I don't know, clothing or, you know, some basic stuff. Granted, we have a surplus of a a lot of of stuff right now, but there's some real, I think, age-old wisdom traditions that the internet is actually becoming the repository for rather than humans. As the tribes might disappear, let's say, that held that, it is recorded both in books, but then also uploaded. That can disappear, right? That's My my fear is like, are we learning the human part of what it means? If we lost technology, how much of that do we still have access to in what might have once been called wisdom keepers, right? Those were the the Googles of the universe. I, I do think, though, that we are forced to more and more definitely adopt technology and become part of it. I really like the direction you take it, how do we do that ethically and how do we create a technology that's, you know, even, I think these are my words for it, but more beautiful, more humane, more exploratory, more communal. And also I'd add for my sake, where we're talking about, more green so that it can be sustainable. That's a really fascinating and exciting place for me with technology when I get optimistic and I say, wow, that would, be, that would be great. My only caveat is let's make sure we don't get dependent on that's the only way
1: to do the things that we hope to achieve. One question, um, and it doesn't have to be the last question, but it seems relevant now that, that we've been asking um, most of our guests in this podcast series is – we can imagine ourselves 50 years from now, maybe 100 years from now, you know, perhaps more, you know, some of your stories have these epic time scales, right? What have we done correctly if things turn out all right? What have we done right with technology that produces a a future we won't regret, I suppose?
2: Mm-hmm. I think the basis of access to information is amazing right access to one another to each other's voices to each other's i mean this is also again depends whose voices and what and whatnot but i think the connection part of that is incredible the films the creativity part of it the music the ability to find lost albums even something like that is uh really adds so much more beauty and diversity and richness to our culture and so i think that's really incredible I mean, those are the main ones. You know, of course, it's easier to order stuff online, but I'm not sure that we needed those. You know, necessary. I think we could have mm. coped without that.
0: So human connections probably is, if I, if I get this right, is sort of your answer. What mm-hmm. have we done right? Yeah. But one last question on this, mediated or non-mediated? Mediated, so, for example, yeah. human human voice, whether human voice were, you know, once this podcast will be online, it'll be a mediated experience of your voice and your thought, your thoughts. Mm-hmm. Using the phone to call my wife is a mediated experience. Right. It's still it's still a human connection. I still get to talk to her yeah. and it's still important for me. When you say the importance of human connection, is it mediated or non-mediated or is it mediated up to a point and what theoretically would be that
2: point? It kind of depends on the individual, right? Because some people, they, all of their friends exist online mm-hmm. and that for them is an incredibly rich experience because they can talk to people and what have you and, and connect. And somebody with social anxiety might point out that they don't want to connect in real life necessarily, right? They don't want to be in a scene with all these people. They like controlling that. In general, I I think the the media is wonderful up to a point and then we need the direct. You know, if I'm only ever talking hmm. to my wife through the phone and through text messages and through then at a certain point, when one goes to sleep at night there's no one there to hold you right in that way and that i think we want experience those unmediated moments it's so important that it's not just online and that we're just hearing that it is being able to see each other respond to each other say afterwards you know thank you for that or hear what somebody else says and i'm working on this and those follow up and yes that could happen in comment sections But not in the same way. There is that human. And so I am a strong believer that we still need the bodies in a room and the the warmth of that.
3: So uh, my my question relates to, I guess, the role of the artist as sort of conscience, or especially for someone who's writing, I mean, maybe not science fiction, speculative fiction, but imagining new worlds, especially if your content relates directly to technology and, and the way that we relate to it, that you have this voice that people are listening to and your writing is connecting with a large audience. What is the role of the artist in predicting or leading people towards a better future?
2: Films are going to be coming out that are right. made from the stories and so that's going to reach a really wide audience and, and and the book reaches an audience. So I think a lot about what is the tone of the work itself. This is actually a craft question for me and a conflict question of what kind of stories am I then telling? Mm-hmm. And am I giving hope? Or am I giving despair? Mm -hmm. And that that's, it turns out to be, I think, a very important tonal setting in the world of what do I want to, how do I want to see the world? This is actually like the solar punk critique of dystopian fiction, which is, hold on, you're not yet writing the stories that you want to see of green futures. So, you know, right now I write these stories and then it turns out that comfort porn exists and people are putting, you know, creating contact lenses and what have you with the social media and the contact lenses. And I say, oh no, like what does a fiction that casts a net towards what one hopes for as humanity looks like? And I don't know that that's, you know, that's the solar punk take on it. I don't necessarily know that it has to be conflict-less or that you can have that. I think it's actually a tonal issue. Mm -hmm. How do you approach your characters? How much love as an author do you put into that? And I think that then has an effect out there. And so I think as artists, musicians, you name it, there's always this question of what is the heart behind it for me? Mm -hmm. And and to what extent is that going to extend out into the world? Because I think it does. I think everything we do, even in our daily interactions, has that issue of, of tonality, really of um, the kind of vibration we put out, ultimately.
1: Mm-hmm. The last question, I mean, it's sort of leading into it already, that like the, the role of the artist is, we could say, providing an image of where the reflection of our current time could go, or, you know, perhaps should, uh, less prescriptive, but definitely, you know, here's a way that things wouldn't, you know, get messed up, we could say. One of the the most beautiful lines I kind of picked up in one of the philosophy readings I was forced to do, you know, as a student, uh, was, was Baudrillard, and he defines... The, the world is that which cannot be replaced, right? Like there's no mm-hmm. alternative to it. And and I like that way of thinking because it, then we can ask, it's like, okay, well, what are the things that we don't want replaced in the world? And and I see technology, you know, many times in, in great ways, it replaces things, you know, like a backhoe replaces a whole day of backbreaking labor for yeah. a labor force. Facebook replaces the need for an expensive phone call uh, or a letter and so on. And mm-hmm. Maybe then approaching this, positive future negatively. What do we not want to have replaced? Like, what do we not want to have substituted?
2: Well, yeah, I think that's what my new book is, uh, answering that, you know, it's love for, for, I think, I think human love, I think human warmth, human kindness, compassion. These are some of the high ideals of, you know, all of our spiritual traditions and non-spiritual traditions as well, that say, those are things that we, that we're working through ourselves to figure out how to do that better and better. Um, hopefully, right? Not everybody is all the time, but I think it, it depends how you approach that too. And some Buddhists would say even those who are in suffering are ultimately trying to seek some kind of good or relief to their suffering. They're just doing it in a slightly thwarted way. So I think those are things that we can't replace. We might have substitutes for it in technology. Technology might get good enough that we really feel loved by it, and it creates a biochemical this and that and whatnot. <laughs> but I still think that without that, there's going to be a real limitation there. That is what we don't want to lose in the end of it all.
1: Well, thank you so much. Thank That's so beautiful. Much. Thank you so much, Alexander.
0: Thank uh, you. It was a real a real pleasure to welcome you at Building 21. It was an amazing workshop we had uh, this afternoon. Uh, great talk also with students about the the beauty and the terror of being a professional <laughs> professional writer <laughs> thank you thank you so much